From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with Professor Andrew Basevich about the ongoing war in Afghanistan. And after that conversation, renowned musician Richard Green joins us to talk about the blues, one of America's true original art forms. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. On October 7, 2001, the United States launched Operation Enduring Freedom and has been in Afghanistan since that time, making it the longest war in U.S. history. America's reasons for going in no longer resemble the reasons why it remains. Joining us to discuss Afghanistan is Professor Andrew Basevich. Professor Basevich teaches at Boston University is one of this nation's leading public intellectuals. Professor Andrew Basevich, welcome to the Public Morality. Well, thanks for having me on your program. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, let's begin with my asking what at this point could be viewed as a trick question. <laughs> Why is the United States in Afghanistan? Well, we're in Afghanistan because back in 2001, uh, it appeared, and I think rightly appeared, uh, that... Uh, there was an urgent national security uh, rationale for us taking military action there. We, we intervened in Afghanistan back in 2001 to make it clear that any regime that was sponsoring or harboring uh, anti-American terrorists, as the Taliban had done, was going to pay a very, very severe price for doing that. The problem is that once we got in, uh, we never were able to figure out how to get out. Uh, and and here we are going on, what, uh, 16 years later, uh, and that how to get out question remains unanswered. I recall uh, back in 2008, uh, then-candidate Barack Obama, who ran ostensibly as the anti-war candidate, pledged to turn around Afghanistan, which he defined as the good war, sort of harkening back on your previous answer, that that was the war we should have fought. And so to juxtaposing that with George Bush's bad war, which was Iraq, uh, but to continue in your last answer, what happened, sir? Well, I think the, the first point to be made is that um, my guess, and it's only a guess, I don't think it's something we could prove, is that uh, candidate Obama uh, said what he said, Iraq is the bad war. We never should have gone there. Afghanistan is a good war. Elect me and I'll win it. I think, I think to a very considerable extent that was campaign rhetoric. I, don't, I, don't, I seriously doubt that Senator Obama, who didn't really know much about military matters at this point, I doubt that he had really thought through the implications of making that statement. Nonetheless, he did. He got elected. Uh, therefore, he assumed ownership of the war. And you may recall, your listeners will recall, that back uh, uh, end of 2009, first part of 2010, 
that's when the Obama administration uh, made its effort to win the war uh, at the time of the so-called Afghanistan surge, uh, when General Stanley McChrystal had been appointed to run the war. And McChrystal promised to do in Afghanistan what General Petraeus had ostensibly done in Iraq, that is to say, apply the ideas of counterinsurgency to turn things around. The problem is that it didn't work. Uh, and, and by the latter part of 2010, with McChrystal already removed from the scene, it had become apparent that counterinsurgency in Afghanistan was not going to provide some kind of a ma- magical solution. And I think from that point forward, from, from basically the latter part of 2010 to where we are today, both the Obama administration and now the Trump administration have really been engaged in managing a conflict uh, that they more or less accept and that the United States military more or less accepts is really unwinnable. Uh, but again, uh, they don't know how to get out. So you make it sound, I'm going to use another uh, uh term that was used around the military about a decade or so back. You make it sound like don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> I, ne- I never thought of it that way. <laughs> but, but, but it, but it, but it kind of fits. You know, I, I, there, there's no question that, uh, uh, you know, the people who serve us in our military are, for the most part, wonderful people. You know, they're brave, they're courageous, they do what they're told to do, they serve the country without asking uh, a heck of a lot for it in return. That said, I think both the military leadership and the civilian leadership of our national security apparatus, they're not, they're not, they're not out-of-the-box thinkers. They're not particularly creative. Uh, and so faced with a circumstance like we are faced with, a war that just drags on and on and on and on and on, uh, they, I think, have a difficult time uh, uh, thinking radical thoughts, uh, that the inclination is to try harder, you know, try, try a somewhat different approach, uh, hoping against hope that, that, that a positive outcome will materialize, but it obviously hasn't. Uh, the costs are enormous. Cost to us, a couple thousand American dead, 20,000 American wounded, far greater costs uh, endured by the people of uh, Afghanistan, huge fiscal costs. Uh, you know, money that basically we don't have, or at least money that could well be spent on, on, on uh, tangible uh, uh, products that would have some positive use. Uh, but I think, I think the political establishment, the military establishment, are kind of paralyzed. Uh, and so the war just keeps dragging on. We're now at a point... Uh where you recently wrote in the New York Times, quote, we'll never leave so we're, we no longer talk about why we're there, unquote. I don't recall in American history a more dire commentary about America's theater of war. Well, you know, this is, this is the longest war in our history, uh, easily, uh, considerably longer than, than Vietnam, which uh, when I was a young man, that was sort of the... Uh, the definition of a long, drawn-out, protracted war was, was Vietnam. Now we've got Afghanistan, and of course we've also got Iraq, which is almost as long. As long. I, think, I think the issue here is that if you, if you think about the commonplace American attitude with regard to military power, 
that emerged in the end of the Cold War, so we're talking early 1990s here, there was this conviction, especially after Operation Desert Storm in 1991, there was this conviction that, that we, we had an unbeatable military, that we had a military that once it vent, when it ventured into the field was going to beat up on the other side and rather quickly uh, bring the conflict to a conclusion. That was the expectation. That was the expectation back in 2001 when we went into Afghanistan. It was the expectation in 2003 when we went into Iraq. And it must be said in both cases, the early returns seemed to, uh, to be consistent with those expectations. We, we, we succeeded. U.S. forces succeeded in overthrowing the Taliban in a matter of weeks. They succeeded in overthrowing Saddam Hussein in a matter of weeks. The problem is that those successes did not yield a conclusive outcome. Uh, and, and so here we are all these years later, and I think that it's still exceedingly difficult for our military leaders, for our political leaders, and quite frankly, for most of the American people to acknowledge the limits of American military power, to acknowledge that those expectations that we knew how to win, we know how to win quickly, we know how to win economically, those expectations were flat out wrong, uh, and only by admitting that they are wrong, then are we able to begin to think differently about the circumstances in which we find ourselves trapped. But it takes courage to do that, and uh, that kind of, 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 of moral courage, intellectual courage, uh, is a little bit hard to find these days. Uh, I'm wondering, um, your last response, uh, is part of the problem, given your expertise, that there, there's some in some respects, we're unable to share the the post-World War II playbook where you had the Marshall Plan. And then, and, and, and in some ways, we, we come up with these, we intervene in these countries thinking that this is going to turn out the way we want it. We're still sort of clinging on to that playbook. Well, I think, I think there's something to that. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, the uh, architects of the Iraq War in the George W. Bush administration, uh, as they... Um, fantasized that with the invasion of Saddam, the transformation of Iraq into a stable, functioning democracy guided by the United States, that that would happen rather quickly, I think, I think those expectations tended to harken back to the, post excuse me, the post-World War II period. Uh, and people basically made the argument, hey, what the heck, we democratized Western Germany, we democratized Japan, therefore we can democratize Iraq. And they ignored the vast differences in terms of history and culture and, and geographical setting uh, in, in, in those assumptions. But beyond that, I, I, think it's, I think there's a deeper explanation, and it's, it's, a, it's an explanation of, of, uh, that relates to the phrase American exceptionalism, this belief that somehow... Uh, there, there is a plan. It may be God's plan. It may be the plan of providence. It may be history's plan. But, but there is a plan, uh, and the plan says that the planet will, the, the planet can be made into us, that we can transform the world, that we are called upon to transform the world, and and that in the wake of 9/11, this was, this was a summons of, uh, for the United States to to carry on that mission and to carry that mission into the Islamic world. We, we, they're hardwired into us as Americans, I think, is this expectation that, 
that we can, that others want to be like us, and that we can t- demonstrate how they can do that. Uh, and I think that from the get-go, that that expectation has been misguided, uh, and it certainly has not proven to be valid in the event since 9/11 in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, s- staying with that for just a moment. Um that using that post World War II uh, analogy, that playbook. When was the last time that um, we engaged in theater of war, where we were also able to win the hearts and minds of the people in which we intervened? Well, uh, I, I, I think that in terms of, of large scale conflicts, in, in a way, <laughs> uh, you could say that we did that in Korea. I mean, Korea ended in, uh, in, in shrouded in ambiguity. It was a tie. We didn't win. We didn't lose. That said, that in the long-term U.S. military presence and political involvement in South Korea uh, in the intervening, what, 60 years, uh, we have forged a, 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 a largely positive relationship with the people of South Korea. That, that's... That's the closest thing I think you could point to as a success. Certainly Vietnam was, a, was an utter total failure. Uh, Iraq has been a failure. Afghanistan has been a failure. Uh, and so the record is not that good. You also recently wrote um, in the American Conservative that the cost for Afghanistan is approaching $6 trillion. Now, it's hard to miss the irony when just this recent week um, – uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, I, I don't want to digress to, to, to health care, but Speaker Paul Ryan was uh, a, in an interview applauding the fact that the uh, CBO had just estimated they were going to save $357 billion against the deficit over the uh, next 10 years with, the, with their health care proposal. That seems uh, – how can you be excited about that when, when there's $6 trillion yeah. down the hole? Yeah, I mean, I, if I, I, I should, I'm, I'm probably correcting myself, but what I should have written was that Iraq and Afghanistan together are about a $6 trillion. I'm sorry, did I get that price. wrong? I apologize. No, no, it doesn't uh-huh. matter. But the, okay. I mean, what matters is that's a really, really, really big number. <laughs> uh, we and, can certainly and, agree on that. <laughs> and to your point, it's much bigger than any presumed savings by uh, reforming uh, our you know, health care system. And your question is, well, why, why, why does the smaller number get so much attention and the big one gets ignored? Ignored, and I think it, it, for for reasons that are difficult to explain, dollars spent for military purposes somehow don't carry any weight. There's no critical attention. I mean, we could point to other. You know, we've got this new airplane called the F-35, uh, which is far and away the most expensive weapon system in our history. Massive cost overruns horrendous delays, uh, and, 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 and the problems of the F-35 get a certain amount of attention on Capitol Hill, but in terms of something that, that causes outrage in the American people, zero. President Trump just uh, visited the new aircraft carrier named after President Gerald Ford. Massive cost overruns, massive delays, and basically we all just you know cheer that the Navy is going to get itself yet another uh, aircraft carrier, and there's there's just no accountability uh, when it comes to the expenditure of money for military purposes. And, and to your point, 
<laughs> that's even when those expenditures vastly overshadow uh, any other part of the discretionary uh, budget. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Boston University professor uh, and one of our leading public intellectuals, Andrew Basevich. Uh, professor Basevich, uh, when you hear elected officials in Washington, regardless of party, preface any remarks about war with, quote, I support the troops, what goes through your mind? Well, I, I mean, I, I find it kind of uh, contemptible uh, in, in this sense. And, I don't, and I, when they say that, I know they mean it. Uh, at least I think I know they mean it. Uh, but, but they are empty words. Uh, what we need is a definition of supporting the troops that has some real uh, substance to it, and, and more substance than simply, you know, uh, providing money for the for the VA. I, and I support provide money for the VA. But it seems to me the core question in terms of supporting the troops is to ensure that the troops are never sent in harm's way, except when absolutely necessary and to do everything we possibly can uh, to ensure that when they are sent in harm's way, that things get resolved quick, quickly, expeditiously, and therefore the, sol- the troops get to come home. I mean, I would argue that since 9-11, the, the troops have been subject to very considerable abuse, you know, multiple combat tours for, for a lot of these uh, uh, young people with all the implications that, that, that goes with that in terms of uh, separation from, from spouse, from children, uh, divorce rates, uh, you know, PTSD, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, all this stuff comes in the train of it. And, 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 and for wars that have not yielded the kind of success that was promised. So supporting the troops, it seems to me, begins with people saying, why is that? Why is it that the sacrifices that the troops make are not redeemed with success and something that, that therefore yields a tangible benefit uh, to the United States of America? That, that's the kind of support the troops that I think uh, that's what they deserve, in my view. On that note, I, I had the pleasure of attending a, uh, at Wake Forest University last week a, um, a, a luncheon. Of, they have a law clinic um, that they've set up for, for veterans. And one of the individuals uh, stated, I believe they said, we lose 23 veterans to suicide daily. Now, I know that's not just Iraq but um, in Afghanistan, but we lose 23. Is that correct, sir, 23? Uh, I heard 22, but it's right there in the same ballpark. That's correct, yes. Uh, no. So, so uh, while I have you on, um, speak. You know, a lot of what we're talking about here with Afghanistan and the recent really speaks uh, to the thesis uh, of your most recent book, which is America's War for the Greater Middle East. Talk about the book in light of what I view as our um, collective acquiescence, my words, not yours, to war in the region. Well, the, the, the book, uh, the subtitle of the book is A Military History, and, and it, it, it tries to tell the story of what the U.S. military, or what, I should say what the United States has been doing with its military uh, across a very large part of the Islamic world since 1980. And I begin my story in 1980 because that's when Jimmy Carter promulgated the so-called Carter Doctrine, which declared that the Persian Gulf was a vital U.S. national security interest, that is to say, a place that we were willing to fight for. Before 1980, for all practical purposes, 
we weren't willing to fight. We weren't geared up to fight uh, in the Middle East. But but beginning in 1980, U.S. policy became militarized, and the you know the kind of the, the bureaucratic wheels began to turn to lay the basis for intervention, yielding what has now become over 35 years of of of, of U.S. military operations. Some are big, some are small, some are brief, some are protracted. All of them, in my judgment, intended in some way or other to bring about stability in the region, a stability that favored the interests of the United States of America. So here we are, over 35 years later, and it seems to me it's appropriate to ask, how are we doing? (laughs) And the answer is, not well, even though we've we've paid a lot for it. I'm struck by your that, that with that answer, sir. That I don't recall anyone even raising the question. I'm talking about politically, maybe over cocktails, but 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 our elected officials. Is anyone even asking? Is the Middle East the way Jimmy Carter articulated in 1980, when 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 um, our oil resources were very different than they are now? Is anyone even asking the question? Is the Middle East still in our vital interest the same way they were in 1980? Nope, I don't think so. I mean, there are some politicians, and I would cite, for example, uh, Senator John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham as examples, not necessarily the only ones. There are some people who say, we haven't tried hard enough. You know, we need to send more troops to Syria. We need to send more troops to Afghanistan. We need to, you know, we need to beef up our, our air effort. Uh, we need to have more bombs dropped on Yemen. Uh, so that argument gets made. But, but the, the more fundamental, critical question of why are we there? Does this make sense? Uh, are we are we on a track to achieve success? And if not, why not? Those sorts of questions are the ones that don't get answered. You know, you go back and look at how much uh, discussion there was during last year's presidential campaign directed at questions like Iraq and Afghanistan. There was a certain amount of posturing, you know, elect me and I'll get tough. <laughs> but there was really no thoughtful analytical consideration of what U.S. military efforts in that part of the world have yielded. Uh, It was, you know, get tough, bear down, uh, with with somehow a vague expectation that doing so will will yield the victory, Uh, even though their victories have been uh, pretty hard to come by over the past uh, 35 or so years. Now, I'm loving this conversation because as you're giving me answers, I, I have these things that keep popping in my mind. And when you just gave me, when you just gave me that answer, I, I think about former Justice Potter Stewart uh, when he was uh, talking about uh, pornography. He says, um, you know it when you see it. And I'm, so I'm wondering, is that how we're defining victory now? We just know it when we see it in the region? Is that how? Well, you know, when you were, when you were recalling that quote, I was saying, I was thinking to myself, uh, I know, uh, you know, I know a quagmire when I see it, <laughs> uh, and and a quagmire is is where we are. I mean, we the term quagmire applied to military affairs, I think, originated in the Vietnam era. Everybody talked about Vietnam as a quagmire. David Halberstam wrote his book, The yes, Making of a Quagmire. Making of a Quagmire is exactly right. And and once Vietnam got that label, uh, it was. You, you could, you could, they couldn't get rid of it, you know. Vietnam equals quagmire. Well, if Vietnam was a quagmire, then uh, you know what what we're up to and where we're stuck in the in the in the greater Middle East is a quagmire times ten. Uh, and yet, for some reason, 
the willingness that existed back in the 1960s to say of Vietnam, man, we are in a mess, um, that willingness doesn't seem to exist today in our in our political establishment. There have been plenty of people who have written books and you know journalists who who've covered the wars who 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 have offered specific observations of of the fact that things aren't going well, the promises aren't being fulfilled. But in terms of those conclusions having a political resonance, uh, that hasn't happened. Last year. Uh... It was last year. Last year, uh, I uh, interviewed Paul Eli, and we um, were talking about um, Reinhold Niebuhr. Yeah, and I've, I, I've never met him, but I've read his uh, some of his writings, and he's a, a remarkable figure. I think. Well, well, then let me tell you what he said about you. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I asked him because we were talking about Niebuhr and the whole. Uh, I said, "Where is that Niebuhrian voice today?" And guess whose name came up. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Professor Andrew Basevich was one of the two names he brought up that, that's really invoking that Nebroian voice. So since you've already been bequeathed with that title, um, what, what through that Nebroian prism, and I'm specifically citing a book I know you're familiar with, The Irony of American History, right. what, what does that prism say about Afghanistan? Yeah, and that's a great book. I mean, if your listeners haven't read that book, Tell them to read it. Uh, I think I think that there there are many many wise things embedded in that book, which basically is a explanation for why we do what we do in the world in terms of our our, our foreign policy. Written back in 1952, equally valid today. Right the end of the Korea, right, right, right when Korea. Yes, yeah. yes. Early early Cold War basically yeah. is the setting for the book, and I think one of the most important things that he says there, and something that. He says we should do, but it's very, very difficult for us to do as Americans, and that is to um, to examine our own motives uh, in a honest way. You know, I think there is a tendency, there's certainly a tendency in American political rhetoric to attach to our actions uh, idealistic motives. We're doing what we're doing because we believe in democracy. We believe in freedom. We believe in human rights. And, and I, I, don't, I don't for a second mean to imply that, that those are lies. They are not. But they certainly are not the complete truth. And I think it's only by fully acknowledging the panoply of reasons that got us into that region that we can come to an honest uh, Accounting and, 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 and therefore consider the possibility of, of change, because many of the things that motivate us relate to selfishness, to narrowness, mm-hmm. perhaps even to bigotry. Uh, and and, we, and we, there has to be a candid um, uh, truth-telling, truth-telling to ourselves. Uh, rather than just constantly arguing that we represent the forces of enlightenment and that we're pitted against the forces of darkness. Since Afghanistan as a region has withstood the might of Genghis Khan, um, Alexander the Great, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, 
and now has us bogged down in effort, as you state, has been re- even removed from public discourse. Mm-hmm. How does this end? Well, I don't know. And actually, I mean, your little thumbnail sketch of history, of course, is the history that Americans tend not to think applies to them. You know, just just because the Brits didn't pacify Afghanistan, somehow we think that their failure has no relevance uh, to us. Um, I, you know, I I I think it I think it doesn't end until, um, I mean, ultimately, um, we we need to think more deeply about. If, if, we, if we are the people who define ourselves in terms of, of freedom, and I think, I think, I think we do. You know, we, we think we are about, we are the, we are the freedom people. We, are the, we think. We are the people who cherish freedom. We are the, we are the people who, who promote freedom. We think. Uh, I think the beginning of wisdom is to examine very critically what is the operative meaning of the word freedom in the United States of America in the 21st century. And, and, and to consider the possibility, and I think it, this is the case, that that definition of freedom is, 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 is fundamentally flawed, uh, that we have strayed off the path of righteousness, uh, and that only by coming to a truer definition of freedom will we then be able to come to a, a better understanding of what our role in the world ought to be, and, and, and a role that, in my estimation, ought to place less emphasis on using military power in order to try to, to align the world with our expectations. doesn't mean we come home. doesn't mean we embrace isolationism. means that we think differently about ourselves and think differently about about the world and the way it should work. Professor Andrew Basevich, thank you for being on the Public Morality Today, sir. Thank you. That was Professor Andrew Basevich. Stay tuned as I speak with Richard Green about the blues. Welcome back. That was Muddy Waters singing The Blues Had a Baby and They Named It Rock and Roll. The blues is one of the most influential characteristics that gave birth to what we know today as rock and roll. Beginning in the Mississippi Delta region with African slave work songs, the blues migrated into other areas of the country, inspiring rock legends such as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Jimi Hendrix. But what exactly is the blues? Joining me to answer that question, or at least attempt to, is Richard Green, a renowned musician. Green has played with Albert King, Buddy Guy, the Fabulous Thunderbirds, Muddy Waters, and so many more. And it is my honor to have him on The Public Morality. Richard Green, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much, Byron. I'm, uh, I'm honored to join you. Well, we're glad to have you. Let, let's start with a really softball question. 
Uh, what is the blues? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was I was almost hoping that that wouldn't come up, or I was worried that we'd spend our entire conversation on it. And I've been thinking about it uh, since you and I spoke before, um, and. You know, I, it's almost kind of a cliche, but uh, it's, uh, it's a slice of life. It's a feeling. It's something that arises um, and can't be divorced from the, you know, the African-American history in America. Um, although, you know, as we said, it's been uh, adopted by a much broader audience. And to some extent, uh, African-Americans have outgrown the blues, but the blues is still there. So, you know, what is it? Uh, is it an artist? You know, for instance, uh, I was recalling doing shows with B.B. King around 1980, and at the time he was very concerned about keeping his sound current. Uh, he talked about, uh, you know, being, um, being unnerved by listening to the progress musically that was going on with, he specifically mentioned uh, Rita Franklin and James Brown. And one of the songs he featured in his set back then was a really pretty kind of ballad called Hold On. And uh -huh. musically, it had nothing to do with the blues. It had almost a slow reggae feel to it. It recalled, uh, you know, Bob Marley. But it was B.B. King doing it. And it was that unmistakable voice and guitar. So it's a different style of music, but I'll answer your question with a question. Is that blues? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, you can have so many definitions to it. I, I, I certainly take your point. You know, uh, if we take uh, what is considered blues today, and it's sort of touched on in your previous answer, if we walk it back... We ultimately reach southern plantations, um, slaves, African-Americans, sharecropping, which, which where the blues sort of grew out, and which in many respects uh, I think is why many African-Americans uh, over the years be, uh, came to reject the blues. How, how, how do you see that? You know, um, I watched and came up in, uh, and I came up musically in the early 70s, and I I was very attentive to music, uh, to blues music, uh, oddly from the time I was 11 or 12 years old uh, because, uh, you know, I came, I came from a pretty privileged background. My dad was a lawyer. I grew up in the uh, pretty posh suburb of New York City. Uh, and among his clients were a few record companies. So when I was in, uh, in late grammar school, fifth or sixth grade, Boxes of, uh, of you know, complimentary records started to arrive at the house. And it exposed me to all kinds of stuff that um, I might not otherwise have heard. And, you know, while that, uh, while that transition and transformation was occurring in, in my 12-year-old head, the audience um, of blues music was transitioning, too. And... Although a lot of people said, you know, this is another case of what went on in the 50s and has gone on before then where you had Pat Boone recording, uh, you Tutti know. Tutti Fruity, Little Richard songs. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and selling a whole lot of records. And you had a huge white audience out there that, that thought that these were Pat Boone songs. Uh, you know, by the same token, I think there was some degree of uh, a kind of sophisticated 
resentment at the white audience appropriating blues music, and especially, I think, about white players appropriating blues music because of what you said a moment ago. This music came out of the African-American experience in America dating back from slave days, you know, to the, to the 18th century. And it wasn't necessarily uh, always about that, but that was the undertone to it. And so how could these young white kids like me, uh, who never experienced these things, and our ancestors really didn't either, how could we come along and, and grab onto this music and say we knew the blues? Uh, at the same time, um, I, I realized that the artists themselves, they didn't care who was buying their records and, and paying good money to come here and play. They, they right. were just fine with uh, you know an audience of white college students. And the first guy you really saw this with was B.B. King. And this was not some marketing ploy that the artists of the record companies really plotted out. This happened organically, and the artists and the record companies kind of followed along with the tide. So, you know, race is always an aspect of, it, it really isn't always an aspect of popular culture of sports in America. Um, I don't think it should define it. But I think that it should be a part of one's experience in experiencing these cultural factors. Well, you know, in my view, though not exclusively, I would delineate fans of the blues into two categories. Those of us, and I would, where I would include myself, those who love the art form. Mm-hmm. And then there are those for whom the art form speaks to them and for them. I wonder how how did you see that? The um, you know I was privileged uh, when I was a full time player for twenty years, really spanning uh, a little bit more from about nineteen seventy three until uh, the mid nineties. I was very privileged to be exposed to some people who, at the time, some of them. I didn't realize really who I was standing next to and who I was actually playing with. Now, you know, I knew I knew it when I was standing next to Muddy Waters. I knew it when I was sitting in the dressing room alone with B.B. King. Uh, but when I was playing with Johnny Shines, who was, a, uh, I think, a relative of Robert Johnson and almost a contemporary of his, with Robert Lockwood Jr., who everybody called Robert Jr. Lockwood, which he hated, uh, with people like that, these were people, as you said, you know, the latter group. These are people for whom and about whom and from whom this came. And there is a difference between them and people, you know, younger people like me who discovered the music, who felt the music, who got pretty good at playing the music, but our life experience was not the same. And, you know, we've had, I've had some stark reminders of this in the past five days where, you know, we turned on the computer on Thursday and James Cotton has passed away. Uh, and he was a lesser light, but just as legitimate and credible as any of these, these better-known guys. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Saturday I come home and, and Chuck Berry has died. Um uh, and there, you know, get back to the question of what's blues. It's Chuck Berry blues. Well, he's playing a different groove. 
and uh, his whole narrative and, and lyrical approach is very much more, uh, it's a step beyond blues in terms of its sophistication. But where that's coming from, and the experience that that is coming from, in which he grew up in an incredibly segregated, not incredibly, it was a segregated St. Louis. Um, he had uh, the experience of an African-American, nearly 20th century in America. Uh, he came from the same place. So is Chuck Berry blues or is it rock and roll? Is, you know, where does blues end? Where does rock and roll begin? Where does blues end? Where does jazz begin? Right. Again, you know, I'm right. answering a question with a question, well, but then, then, I don't have to think the answers for those questions. Well, you just figured out the whole premise of the public morality. We we don't answer real questions here. We just throw out questions. We don't give them any answers. I mean, yeah. that's for someone that's someone else's job here. But uh, um, you mentioned James Cotton, who it, who uh, uh, passed recently, and you've said of him, and I have heard you say this of other. Um, uh, towering blues figures that about him um, you said that you met him you, you knew him but you didn't really know him and you questioned if it was even possible to know him you said that about Muddy Waters what do you mean by that? Well you know uh, it gets down to where we came from uh, the reality the Americas in which we grew up which were two different worlds uh, the experience that we had had in life, I mean, you know, Muddy, B.B. King, these guys grew up as sharecroppers on plantations. Um, there is no way that I could expect to get inside the real head and heart of a man like that, and let's say, you know, something had happened like we got in the car and drove cross-country together and spent a week sharing motel rooms or something like that, then maybe you start to get through to a level of comfort and trust that these people would not necessarily reveal to anybody that hadn't shared that life and that experience. Maybe they weren't concealing it, but it just was not there. That, that resonance with another person is not there. You know, when I, I was young, when I met people like Cotton, like Muddy, I was barely 20 years old. And uh, I was getting okay at playing this music and starting to understand it. Um, and I had the illusion that I could talk to these guys as peers. Um, and, and looking back on it, uh, they were very tolerant of me <laughs> because I was not their peer. Uh, I was not their peer musically because I was mimicking what they created. That's a huge difference. Um. You know, I, I, you've touched on this some. I, I want to um, have you touch on it more. As we as we play around with this amorphous definition of what is what is the blues, I, I, I would offer, or at least ask you, can you come up with any definition of the blues that does not include some appreciation for the socioeconomic conditions that gave rise to it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it is... Uh... It's an art form that is masterful and brilliant in its minimalism. Um, and that's what you really hear there in the playing of people that are they're more familiar with. I mean, you listen to 
Uh, and that minimalism is something that people who pay attention to this music and mature in it gradually acquire. Uh, that has been my experience. And if you listen to B.B. King from his earliest recordings, which are accessible now, they, they once would have been available only on 78 RPM discs, but if you listen to that stuff now, he's playing faster and hotter than I ever knew he could play. There's a, uh, an instrumental record he made in the 60s called Spotlight on Lucille. Um, and there are some instrumentals on that record, uh, one in particular, Powerhouse, which is just hot stuff. I mean, it is smoking and he's playing fast. Um, it sounds like early Gatemouth Brown. But he found his thing. Uh, and his thing was to let a lot of air into his playing, a lot of white space, so that when you heard a note, it just, it just you know, uh, made your socks roll up and down, and you were waiting for the next one, but you had to wait for it. Now, Muddy Waters always had that. His playing is extremely spare and extremely simple, and that, it's technically simple. It is emotionally incredibly complex. And it's that aspect of it musically that I think is much more profound and much more emblematic of the blues than just saying, okay, you know, a verse is 12 bars long and it hits the one chord for four or two bars and then a four card, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, to my mind, defined that narrowly by, uh, you know, a certain set of musical parameters. It's defined by almost what's not being played as much as what is being played. Well, well, musically, and I, and I know this is true for me, so I know it's true for you. Um, it, I, you, you know, a Muddy Waters song before Muddy Waters utters a word. You know a John Lee Hooker song before John Lee Hooker. And the same with B.B. King, right? Even though it's simplistic, each one is distinctive in that simplicity. Yeah, yep, and they are so distinctive, uh, you know, in terms of just that range. You think about John Lee Hooker and B.B. King. I mean, those guys are almost polar opposites where B.B. became this eloquent, courtly, worldly, sophisticated persona. And Hooker remained a scary guy that he did his entire life. And, and Hooker uh, also evolved through various musical forms. I was, I was looking at some notes that I wrote down uh, just from random iPod listening, and I heard this Hooker song, and it sounded like just him playing through some overdriven, cheap little amp and some kind of skating rink organ, and it was just that. And the thing is insane. Yeah. <laughs> And Hooker was like that. I mean, he would shake you to the bones. He would grab you by the lapels and then he'd shake you and throw you away, you know. B.B. would, you know, grab you by the arm and, and walk you through a field of flowers. And then you, have, then you have guys like, say, what, Freddie King, Albert King, who just, like, tear the building down, just a, a battering ram, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I mean, in terms of, in my point about it not being so much a musical form, you know, a lot of Howlin' Wolf stuff is not 12-bar blues. Uh, but, you know, that man opens his mouth, and you're hearing the blues. Yeah, it's the wolf. Um, 
You know, one of, one of the things that, that uh, what, we grapple with the definition with the blues, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with renowned musician and blues aficionado Richard Green. And, and, and Richard, one of the things is we grapple with this definition of what is the blues. It, you know, I sort of define it. The blues, in my opinion, uh, is like is like how we define barbecue in this country. That 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 Texas is one flavor, Kansas City is another, Memphis and their dry rub is another. The sort of vinegary based sauce here in North Carolina. How many variations of blues come to mind for you? Well, um, think about it. You've got the earliest known recorded stuff, and everybody, well, not everybody, but the best known. Of those early guys is Robert Johnson. Uh, I'm going to state uh, some apostasy, which is Robert Johnson is, you know, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I, uh, it'll pop up when I'm listening to iPod on shuffle, which is the only way I listen to it. So, I'll, you know, I'll hear uh, it juxtaposed one after the other. I'll hear Robert Johnson and then, you know, the Ramones and then Frank Sinatra and then Beethoven and then Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> But uh, there's that generation. It's the acoustic guys from the uh, 20s and 30s. Sunhouse would be in that group? Uh, The guy that I discovered that that really does make my socks roll up and down is Charlie Patton. That guy is scary. He makes Robert Johnson sound like Shirley Temple. So there's there's that generation of guys. Then you have uh, a, a kind of a split in terms of what happened in the 1940s where... You know, on one side you have, and this is this is what I find so fascinating in terms of the development of African American popular music in general, is that on you know on one end you had Muddy Waters. This is raw, raw stuff, and extremely. I mean, you call it, it's not it is not sophisticated in terms of uh, musical breadth. Then you listen to, I mean, one of my Desert Island songs. Top ten songs is Jimmy Rushing singing "Don't You Miss Your Baby" with Count Basie. I was going to say Jimmy Rushing and Count Basie were a duo, so yeah, there you go. And and that's blues, but it is in a completely different direction. And if you think contemporaneous with these guys, you've got Coleman Hawkins and Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. and they to some extent came out of the same experience. So, all right, so you get to, you go from, say, the 20s and 30s to the 40s and late 40s, then you introduce the electric guitar. And, oh, my God, <laughs> that's, that, that changes things dramatically. And you hear the first guys that are playing arpeggioed solo improvisation on electric guitar, the Gatemouth Browns, T-Bone Walkers, people like that. And that's what really started the ball rolling for what we came to know when we were younger in the 1960s. Then you pass the baton forward to the next generation, and you got B.B. King and Albert King and Freddie King. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, if you want to get a sense of this, uh, this chronological, this lineage, uh, look at the set list from Eric Clapton when he was doing his From the Cradle thing in the mid-'90s. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, I saw him a couple times doing this, and he starts out with Robert Johnson. He might have hit Charlie And Patton, From the Cradle was, is, 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 was his homage to blues. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, But, you know, I, I'm watching him do this stuff, and, of course, he's technically extremely competent. He's Eric Clapton. He's the best Eric Clapton-style guitar player out there. 
And uh, but I'm looking at them play this Robert Johnson stuff and a little bit beyond that Tampa Red, and it's he's sort of professorial. Uh, he's not inhabiting the music. He's playing it. It's like an historic reenactment. And then he hits uh, uh, Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign. It's two-thirds of the way through the show because he's going through it chronologically. And boom, I mean, it just explodes. And it does so because that's where he really found himself musically in the late 60s. And he was contemporaneous with these guys. Uh, he played with them. He listened to them. And in some ways, in a little bit, um, he carried some of their songs a little bit farther than they did. And that's when the music started to ricochet back and forth with the younger guys, black or white, and the older guys. Richard Green, I want to thank you so much, sir, for being on The Public Rally today. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is PublicMorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is located on iTunes. I would like to thank my guests, Andrew Basevich and Richard Green, the Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.